Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. Richard Serrett sitting in for George Norrie, Greg Lawson, my guest. The Roswell, or Roswell, the After Action Report is uh, the latest book. So let's start talking about some of these witnesses. And um, let's begin with Mac Brazel, the uh, the foreman, uh, ranch hand on the Foster Ranch. And this is interesting because the timeline here is is pretty wide open, um, you know, as to when exactly he stumbled upon the uh, the debris that was strewn across the uh, the property that he, that he was tending anywhere from the middle of June to the middle of July. Uh, does that uh, raise any red flags for you that he can't that he didn't pinpoint the, the exact day? You would think, you know, if you discovered material potentially, you know, of otherworldly incident, you would know it right down to the second when you found it. Right. And, uh, you know, in, in his first uh, interviews, his first discussions uh, with Sheriff George uh, Wilcox and in his first discussions with Jesse Marcel, it indicated and it was kind of suggested that this was found very recent, like in the, uh, the, the past one or two days. Uh, however, the other interviews that he did, he did a couple of interviews uh, uh, on the radio, which unfortunately there were no recordings made of those. Those would have been gold. Um, and then he had, uh, uh, you know, a couple of interviews with the, the Roswell paper. Um, the second interview kind of uh, backtracking, uh, talking about that it was a longer time period. So that's one of the things that a lot of uh, Roswell investigators get all hemmed up on is I, I want to know the, the the date and the time that this happened. Um, that comes from a, a lot of inexperience. Uh, in, in criminal investigations, you can have an affidavit that says, uh, you know, between this time and this time, or this date and this date, or on or about December 25th these actions happened. We know they happened on or about that date. And we believe that this person did it and they found this and this is what happened. So you don't have to pinpoint things. It's, it's a lot better if you do. But yeah, it, the, the question is, did it happen somewhere around June 14th, three weeks prior to him coming forward? Or did it happen, you know, the July 4th and he came forward a couple of days later or you know, when did it happen? Because a reasonable person, yourself or I, or a lot of the listeners would sit back and say, if I found a spaceship, I'd call somebody right now. But if I found just some debris out there, I didn't quite know what it was, and I was busy, I had things to do, I'll get around to it when I get around to it. So that's what it apparently happened uh, when Matt Brazel saw this stuff is wow that's strange i don't know what it is i'm going to get back to it here in a little while i have some things to do so there wasn't a it, it didn't seem like there was a, a real crazy or urgency on his part so and that, that is much is, kind of right right and much has also been made of reports that he was detained uh, and confined uh, and perhaps interrogated, and which may have led to him changing his story. What did you find out about that? Was is there any corroborating evidence that he was in fact confined and detained and interrogated? 
so so we don't have any paperwork on that, right? The, the Air Force, uh, if they had any, they didn't put any forward. Uh, there was no uh, information from the sheriff's office about that. That information came from some of his friends uh, uh, put that forward after he had passed away, and they were interviewed by some of the uh, Roswell you know, people that were investigating uh, the case. So when you get information like that, you have to consider it. Um, I, I do a lot of paranormal. Um, I, I assist a lot of teams in paranormal uh, investigation, interviews, evaluation of evidence, that sort of thing. And people will say, well, yeah, um, that guy said that he was abducted, but you know he's, uh, uh, you know, he suffers from schizophrenia and he's on medication. I said, okay, that's one of the things I'm going to write down in, in, in my considerations. But I don't immediately just discredit him because if those things truly do happen, they could happen to you or I and somebody who's suffering from schizophrenia also. Uh, you can't just say that they're not credible just because uh, they have a mental illness. So you go back and you look at, in, in this case, uh, some of the people that came forward were the proctors that came forward and said, yeah, you know, I, I saw him downtown. He was with some, uh, some government officials. Uh, normally, you know, he's very friendly with me. Uh, he didn't speak to me. He made real brief eye contact, shook his head, and then they put him in a car and they drove him away. And those sorts of things were reported about about him and, and situations that were reported about him. But that's all we got. And it, it, when, when something happens and we don't record it on audio, video, or, 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 you know, document it somehow, it just escapes, you know, that, that event sca- escapes into a hole in the sky, and it's gone. And we, we don't have it anymore. So, you know, I kind of just kind of shrug my shoulders on it and go, yeah, well, I would think that if he came forward with some very top-secret material, that it would be more than, oh, okay, thanks, appreciate it, we're going to chunk this over here, see you later. I would think that there would be a debriefing that would go on with that. There would be a pretty good cross-examination. You know, are you sure you didn't stick some of this under your bed or hide some of this material someplace, or who else did you tell you know, I would want to follow all those lines of inquiry in order to, uh, you know, keep this thing close to my chest and, and make sure that anybody that did have anything to do with it, that they were also debriefed and that we would collect whatever material, uh, you know, that was, uh, was gathered up. So if, if you're make, building... It a, sense, yeah. Right. If, so if you're building a case trying to build a case that something extraterrestrial crashed near Corona. Would you put Mac Brazel on the witness stand? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He'd have to be there because he's, he, he's our, our outcry, what we would call in a child abuse case, our outcry witness. He's the first guy, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that had anything to do with anything. If he would have just rode his horse on by and let the wind blow that stuff away or, let the sands, you know, cover it over out there, we wouldn't know anything about it, most likely. And, and the funny thing is, is, is in this case, there's a lot of uh, what-ifs. There's a lot of uh, inferences of, uh, you know, 
certain things happened at equals UFO and aliens. And they're really reaching a lot on, on some of their uh, hypotheses. And in this case, it would make sense uh, to have two or three debris fields if a extraterrestrial craft was coming in very fast and hit the, the, the ground at an angle, it wouldn't just stick there. You know, it would skip off the ground, and it would go back up in the air and fly a little ways, and then it would go back down to the ground. And it may do that two or three times, like, uh, you know, like, like Kenneth Arnold said, a, a stone skipping across the water. Well, in crash situations, impact area situations, the same thing happens. So you could say maybe... Uh, the Mac Grazzle, the Foster Ranch site, was an initial impact site, and that vehicle just left some exterior exterior debris uh, off of their craft there, and the craft went back up in the air and traveled another 15 miles or 20 miles and crashed someplace else, as in Stanton Freeman's Crash at Corona uh, book. So there's a lot of lot of possibilities on this. All right, Major Jesse Marcel, Intel Officer 509th, um, goes out to the Foster Ranch, picks up some material, some described as kind of a memory foil, takes some home, allows his young son, Jesse Jr., to, to play around with it. Um, <laughs> any, any red flags so far? Doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> you know, a, uh, an intelli- you, you would assume an intelligence officer in the United States, uh, soon to be United States Air Force, would know the difference between a flying saucer and a weather balloon material. You, you would assume that. Uh, I think reasonable people would assume that. You would assume, based on our contemporary standards, standards of things that we know today because of our training, experience, education, watching TV, that sort of thing, Radiation or, you know, microbes or germs or whatever from some other world could have been on this stuff. Who in the world, who in their right mind would expose their children to that, right? I mean, I think that's what we're all asking ourselves. Um, But we are evaluating this from a contemporary standard. They didn't even have TV when Jesse Marcel picked this stuff up. So he hadn't watched all the TV shows that we've watched that said that there's, you know, microbes, you know, scanners and all these other movies where, you know, the, the alien material gets on people and, and does stuff. And you got to count in, you know, people say, well, radiation, they had the bomb. and they, Yeah, they had the bomb and people would stand around and watch it blow up. And that, that, that radiation fell everywhere and they kind of shrugged their shoulders on it. Uh, later, we found out it was really bad. We knew it was bad. We just didn't know how far it would carry, how, how much damage it would do. So when you're looking at Jesse Marcel's behavior, you have to think about it from his time frame. If you found this material and you believed it was from a UFO, an alien that was flying a UFO and crashed, would you take it home to your son and share that moment with him? I don't know whether I would or not. I mean, you know, you think somebody who has a top secret, top, top secret security clearance would know better than to do something like that. But we're all human and we 
sometimes make really poor decisions. Right. So what appears on the surface, what appears on the surface to be a red flag in his testimony isn't necessarily a red flag. Uh, but clearly, you know, when he he flies to Fort Worth with the wreckage at the request of General Ramey, uh, walks into that room, sees that they've pulled the old switcheroo and it's not the debris that he handled. This is now obviously the remnants of some sort of a weather balloon. And you can see it written all over his face in that photograph. He's got a, he's, he realizes he's being set up as the fall guy. Um, I mean, does that air, does that lend an air of credibility to his case that he, you can see that betrayal written all over his face? Oh, you can definitely see the betrayal written all over his face. Um, you know, it, it gets a little weird because Irving Newton uh, was the weather officer there in Fort Worth. Um, and Jesse Marcel brings the debris to Ramey. Ramey says, hey, let's go take a look at this map. They step out of the office. They look at the map. They walk back in. Jesse Marcel's story is that wasn't the material that he brought, that they brought in some weather balloon material. And then Irving Newton comes in and supports that. Says, oh, yeah, that's that's weather balloon of course well Irving, Irving Newton doesn't know one thing from another later in a test in, in testimony Irving Newton says that Jesse Marcel tried to talk him into uh, believing that this was the material which is controversial in what Jesse Marcel is saying so there's there, there's some controversy on that but I tend to to, to believe Jesse Marcel that that was not the material that he brought in. And the reason I say that is because of what General DeBose says later in his testimony uh, and also uh, Sheridan Cabot, some, some, the counterintelligence officer that was out there with him, and Sheridan Cabot's wife, um, they say some things in their interview that uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, and it, does, it doesn't follow the story, let's put it that way. Do we... Um uh, do we put too much emphasis on the fact that Jesse Marcel was an intel officer at a uh, an installation that housed nuclear weapons? In other words, he had such high, you know, such a great responsibility that he must have been incredibly uh, skilled and highly trained. He's an intelligence officer. You know, surely if he had recognized something out there on the field, he, he would have said so, but that, that he described it as being, you know, not of this world. Do we put too much emphasis on his title and his position? So it's been my experience in the military. P people say, you were in the Army, Navy, and Air Force? I'm like, yeah, I have Armed Forces Attention Deficit Disorder. Uh, they said, <laughs> I, I didn't realize you could <laughs> say, I didn't realize you could do that. I'm like, yeah, you pass the test, you volunteer and say, hey, what's for lunch? You know, you, they'll, they'll take you in if you pass the test. And so, you know, I, I've been a grunt in a lot of different things, and I've worked in uh, as an operations specialist in the Navy. So I had to have clearance to work in the Combat Direction Center, Combat Information Center. I, I handled, you know, radio traffic and, and you know, th that sort of thing. Um, but it's been my experience that, Whoever's next on the list for transfer is the one that's going to fill the next slot that's open. A lot of people will say, oh, you know, these guys in the 509s were the best of the best. And they really were. These guys were, were good Americans, man. I had the ultimate respect for, for the guys that served in the 509s. The only, you know, nuclear bomb wing at the time in the world. 
So you would assume that they were pretty good. But you got to remember, just got through with World War II, getting a lot of people out of the military, you know, big uh, disarming, you know, they're, they're doing all that stuff. A, a lot of the real intel work was being done in Germany and in Japan because they were doing all the, the Nuremberg trials and the, the Asia-Pacific uh, war crime trials there. So a lot of the intel people were doing that kind of stuff, and they were qualifying the people that they would later bring in for, uh, you know, Operation Paperclip, all the scientists that were going to come in and work on uh, nuclear projects, missile projects, and things like that. So who was left to run the shop in the United States? You know, it was the next guy on the list. I don't know whether, you know, Colonel Blanchard said, you know, if I have, any, if I have my choice, I'm going to bring in Jesse Marcel. We find him. Where is he? I don't think that happened. I think he got that billet. And we're all people, man. We make mistakes. We learn the best we can, and we do the best we can. And uh, I, I think he, he, he earns a level of respect and credibility in the position that he was in, but you also have to consider he was a human being, too. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.